0: Picture a man, an older man, in a military uniform, in the corner of a kitchen, peeling potatoes. Making a meal for his comrades, pulling kitchen patrol KP. Now picture that this man is the vice president of the United States. Hannibal Hamlin may not be the only vice president to serve in the military, certainly not, but he's the only one I'm aware of to do so before his vice presidency was over. In Hamlin's case, done with his duties in Washington, Uh, President pro temp the Senate established to manage that body, his only real constitutional job, he wished to make a contribution to the Civil War going on at the time. And he joined the Maine Coast Guard as a private. He didn't want to be treated any differently than anyone else. He performed all the duties, patrol, including kitchen patrol. After some persuasion, they convinced him that he could reside with the officers. But that was his only compromise. It wasn't likely that Maine would be under attack, but if it was, Vice President Hamlin would be on the ready. Service was a strong component of Hamlin's life. He was in political life for most of it, in the state legislature, in the Congress, in the Senate, in a governorship, and finally in the vice presidency. In fact, with a quarter century of public life in Maine, he should be known for many things. But as is the case with so many people that we discuss in this podcast, Hamlin is mainly known, if he's known at all, for being Lincoln's first vice president. Take yourself 10 years after that story of the man peeling potatoes, and picture an even older man dressed in an older style for this post-Civil War time, dressed antebellum, the kind of swallowtail jacket, blue, with big brass buttons. People weren't quite doing that anymore. An aging senator. And when a journalist comes to interview him, he says, how are the folks on the farm? The journalist was not offended. He knew it was an old politician's trick pretending remembrance for somebody he couldn't remember who it was, for somebody that he did not remember indeed. It's not known what the VP and the journalist then began to discuss. But Hamlin could have discussed any number of things that might be interesting to him and interesting to us. Could be, of course, how he worked with the greatest president in American history as ranked by so many historians. How he battled the leader of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, in the Senate years before he served with Lincoln. And how he would not just battle him in the Senate, but be part of an administration that would battle him on the battlefield. (laughs) The key change he made to improve the workings of the Senate. How he helped to form a new political party. How he helped to admit the state of California. With his fiery rhetoric in the Senate. And see that enter the Union as a free state. How he received a nomination from a party that he didn't want, and then had it taken away from him in unceremonious fashion. And how he stood up to what was then commonly known as the slave power. It wasn't just an issue of slavery, but Hamlin is an example of a person who saw the issue as, just as today you might hear Politicians talking about the big corporations or big business, you know, unfair advantages of certain corporations, not the legit commerce that goes on, but the secret deals. And that slavery was not just a wrong, as Hamlin Fulton was, but also like a corporation, an enterprise that was the fruit of that wrong and created a slave power. And that's exactly how they would have referred to it at the time. And Hamlin had stories about how he stood up to that, threw off some of the compromises that were proposed, took on his own party. He might tell you that he was a nullity as Abraham Lincoln's first vice president. That's, after all, what he told friends. He also called himself the fifth wheel of the carriage. Hamlin, like many vice presidents, did not have the most gracious things to say about the office. History presents us with faces in photographs, in black and white. The U.S. Senate chamber that I use for the photographs in this podcast because I think they present the vice president's well, has busts of each vice president. In this case, Hannibal Hamlin was alive to see his bust made and alive for when the Senate voted in 1881 to create a bust for each vice president. And it got a say at which designer would design his bust. In his case, an architect, an American architect who was living in Rome, who he posed for. So... The bust that we see in that chamber is the same bust that Hannibal Hamlin saw being made when he sat. But everything we see from the 19th century and most of what we see from all the vice presidents who did not become president in their own right tends to be silent, still pictures. Hamlin, if you know him at all, you just know him as the guy that was on the ticket with Hannibal, with Abraham Lincoln. And sometimes there's no injustice done. The person who's second in the ticket really kind of belongs there. And obviously, in terms of greatness, no one can argue with Lincoln's position in that formula. But Hannibal Hanlon is done an injustice of sorts because he just wasn't a quiet person who sat on the second spot on the ticket. He was one of the founders of the party that ran Abraham Lincoln in fact, at the time of that election, or a few years before, Hamlin might have been much better known in most Republican circles than Lincoln, who was kind of like a surprising upstart, who, on the strength of the Lincoln-Douglas debates in his Cooper Union speech, came out of nowhere as a likely vice presidential candidate in 1860, and then after a convention surprise, a surprise presidential candidate. Hamlin had been in those battles decades before, took on Democrats, his own party, you know, started as a Jacksonian Democrat, took on Democrats of his own party in the fight against slavery and the expansion of slavery into territories. Hamlin's grandfather liked the classics, and thus his father was named Scipio, and he was named. Oh, and his uncle was named Hannibal the Carthaginian. You know, was named Hannibal after the Carthage leader who nearly beat Rome. Hannibal Hamlin was named after his uncle. He learned law early, but his skill was truly in politics. He was awfully good at it. He was born in August 27, 1809, in a White House overlooking the White Mountains in Paris Hill in Maine, what was then the province of Maine, not yet a state. He grew up surrounded by forest, streams, mountains, came to know them well. He hunted, he fished, he grew up tall and muscular, with black hair. His classmates and his family called him Han. As he grew older, initially he wanted to run the family farm, then did a brief stint as a clerk in a Boston fruit store, and he thought about becoming an actor in the theater, But as his father, who was a doctor, suffered for financial conditions, Hamlin had to gain an income. He tried to become a surveyor. When that didn't work out, he mixed surveying with school teaching. He always felt that dealing with some of the students who were rather large, after all, at the time, Hamlin was only 18 years old, had to show him that he was indeed the teacher and they, the students, taught him a lot about Politics and his dealings with the Senate later. When his father died in 1829, Hammond began to read law. And then he studied at the same time he ran the family farm and cared for his mother and sisters. He immediately got involved in politics. A Jacksonian Democrat, he stumped throughout the 1829 campaign. He tried to start a Jacksonian newspaper. That didn't work out. He intensified his legal studies and became a student. That's how you did it back then, at one of the top law firms in Maine, Sam Fessenden, who was also involved in politics. That fortified him in political life. A member also of the Maine militia, Captain Hamlin, it was said, was carried into the Maine legislature by the members of his militia company, the green-clad Hampton Rifles. His men are unofficially nominated him for the House of Representatives in Maine. He fought to abolish capital punishment in Maine on general humane principles and also because it does not serve as a deterrent, he wrote. Finally, because it is not in accordance with the great and fundamental truths of the sacred book. He would live to see Maine indeed end capital punishment, though 50 years later. Early on in the Maine legislature, he got a chance to deal with abolitionist petitions. He loathed slavery. He wanted to see its extinction. It blights all it touches, he said as a legislator. It's a curse. It's a moral wrong. He felt that it should be prevented from spreading. And when later he was elected to the House as a Democrat for Maine, his fight was against the gag rule, the prohibition that slavery could even be discussed in the House of Representatives. The time has gone by, if it ever existed, when the galvanic starts of any member can produce an impression on this House. I, for one, shall vote on every question according to the dictates of my judgment. I shall vote against motion to recommit and instruct, because this question can be determined in the ordinary way of doing business, if the rule should be reported again without the 21st rule, the gag rule. It will involve the decision of the question of restoring it. If they should be reported with it, this would involve the decision of the question abolishing it. A word as to the position in which I am placed, I do not wish to have my views on this important subject mistaken, nor my votes misconstrued by the rule, because I believe in the right of petition to be a constitutional one and not dependent on the judgment of any member of the House or other body. When this House declares in audience that it will not receive petitions of a certain class, it prejudices the matter and comes in conflict with a constitutional right. I know that any action on these petitions may proceed from the votes of a majority. You see, the House was receiving all of these abolitionist petitions. And with the votes of Southern senators and House members, the Congress wasn't even considering them. Hence the gag rule. But if constitutional right can be taken away in the judgment of a majority of this question, the same thing may be done on any other question. I am in favor of rejecting the 21st Rule and in favor of receiving all petitions that may be offered. I am for referring them to committees in favor of the objects embraced. Let this committee report to us what are the duties we owe, not to the South, but to the Union, to the whole Union, and nothing but the Union. When he was finished, a man came over to greet him. It was John Quincy Adams, the former president of the United States, now serving in the House, who certainly agreed with his position, and said, There is a light in the East. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Hannibal Hamlin was there for the debate over the Compromise of 1850 which he could not agree with. The compromise involved a question of admitting California as a free state. The territory of California had formed a legislature and petitioned Congress for statehood as a free state. They had banned slavery in California territory. And there were certainly objections from the South led by John Calhoun and his protege, Jefferson Davis, who said, oh, California is too large. Oh, you know, how can this group of miners in there just to decide everything? It's up to the Congress. And, oh, this is going to split across the Union. You're going to have, this is going to split the Union. You're going to have war. It was a bitter battle. Henry Clay proposed a compromise, which Daniel Webster, a powerful figure in New England, supported. That would involve admitting California, but also enacting a fugitive slave law, which would require in the North, for slaves to be returned to their owners in the South, and to be enforced, Hamilton, like this, he referred to that Clay's bill as a log roll, forcing people to get something they want to vote for something that's undesirable for them. Here's what he said: You know, Hamilton is one of the fighters for the state of California, for free California. It's not somebody we think of. I'm sure if you live in California today, you're not thinking that you. this guy who you may only know as Lincoln's first vice president is somebody who helped the state um, become a state, but uh, he certainly was. Here's what Hamlin argues to John Calhoun about California, sir, I hold it to be a fundamental principle of our political system that the people have a right to establish what government they may think proper for themselves, that every state about to become a member of this union has the right to form its government as it pleases, and that, in order to be admitted, there's but one qualification, and that is that the government shall be Republican. There is no express provision to that effect. But it results from that important section which guarantees to every state in the Union a Republican form of government. And he pointed out the hypocrisy of the Southern position. He had encouraged the people of California to form a state, form a territory government and petition for statehood. He could continue to quote till the sun went down from Southern statesmen, orators, and newspapers who professed their willingness to leave this question of slavery to the people in the territory. And after having encouraged the people of California to take this step, it was too late to resist the admission of their state. Hamlin took on another argument. One of the transparent objections raised to California was that her territory was too large for one state. It is a large state, as we know today. It's it's the largest uh, in terms of population. Um, and it's a large state in general. Many of the other states were sort of shaped Alabama, Mississippi, sort of shaped in a similar fashion so that they could be sort of even in terms of territory. That was the initial plan. But here's what Hamlin says. If uh, this is your objection, how come you had not protested against the admission of Texas on the same score? No complaints or objections against Texas, on account of her size, were even heard. And yet, if the boundaries of Texas, which were in dispute, could be compressed into their narrowest limits, Texas would yet remain larger than California and be able to support a population ten times larger. In the end, through the compromise and uh, support of uh northern Democrats and anti-slavery Whigs, California was admitted as a state in 1850 and as a free state. That's a powerful turn. The admission of California in 1850 is a kind of no looking back where you have such a large state in the West in the growth area, which does not permit slavery in its boundaries. And I think that was a momentum point for the South, and you know, not a, a negative one in their opinion, and a positive for those who supported a free soil. The debates got pretty rough in the 1850s, and it was common for duels to happen. But Hamlin had an ace up his sleeve, having been a hunter in the Maine woods. He was an excellent shot, and word got out that he had hit the bullseye three times in a row during a practice round. Nobody challenged Hamlin to a duel. You know, as much as dueling was common in the 1850s, I once on my full podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, did a, did a, a podcast about dueling. Um, One of the things, there were certain advantages granted to people who just happened to be good shots or just were very good at the practice. They didn't get challenged and they didn't get insulted as much as some other members might. Um, But one of his friends did get challenged to a duel. And because of that, Hamlin made sure that during a routine piece of legislation, he attached an amendment. Resolve that the committee be authorized to inquire whether any members of this House have violated any of the laws of the Decalogue or of the Ten Commandments within the District of Columbia or any of the states, and that they will be authorized to send for persons and papers, and if they shall find any of the members have been guilty of such a violation of any of these laws or the commandments or having left in this district with an intention of so violating them, that they be required to bring a resolution in to expel all such members. In other words, no dueling here. Uh, A member of the House from North Carolina challenged him and said that dueling's not immoral. And he said, well, isn't fighting immoral? Isn't shooting immoral? Yes, yes, but not dueling. The bill didn't pass, or the amendment didn't pass, but got so many votes that the duelers were scared off and decided to cancel the duel. It's in 1854 when Stephen Douglas, senator from Illinois, uh, presents his Kansas-Nebraska bill that will repeal the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which said that there could be no slavery in the north area of the territories, ever. And... The Kansas-Nebraska Act was intended to create two states, Kansas and Nebraska, out of Indian lands, Um, currently not well populated, they soon would be. It was thought that with the state of Iowa so nearby that Nebraska would probably become a free state and that Kansas would become a slave state because Missouri was so close. So it would be a kind of compromise and that what the Kansas Nebraska Bill called for was popular sovereignty, or as the critics called it, squatter sovereignty. In other words, who's ever there in the territory gets to decide whether the state will be free or slave, not the Congress. It was a dramatic change from the Northwest Compromise, from the Northwest Ordinance and from the Missouri Compromise. Here's what the Hamlin's biographer says. It's December 16th, about the time that it was definitely known that President Pierce and Senator Douglas were beginning to consult over the scheme to abrogate the Missouri Compromise. Mr. Hamlin quickly learned why the president was listening to the hunkers of Maine. These were the pro-slavery people in Hamlin's own state. On January 23rd, 1854, Douglas took Congress by surprise by presenting his bill that proposed the repeal. The anti-slavery senators had no intimation of what was coming when Douglas took the floor. They were simply aghast when they heard this proposition. Mr. Hamlin could hardly believe the evidence of his senses. Repeal the Missouri Compromise? What next? Would the Calhoun Party lay its hands on the Constitution itself? The anti-slavery men were sickened and angered. The pro-slavery men were jubilant. Congress at once was in a roar of angry debate. Douglas had finished his memorable speech, introducing his bill and urging its adoption on the ground that it would vindicate the principle of non-intervention by the Congress. What is known in the history of it, there have been several meetings, not only with President Pierce, but with Jefferson Davis, with David Acheson, and very pro-slavery senators who were controlling is sometimes called the F Street mess, a group of senators who were controlling everything in the body. Douglas could not get any of his bills through. He was the chairman of territories, but could not get anything through without their approval. He also had railroad interests that would be benefited by the establishment of these new states. His own political career. He desired the presidency. He wanted the nomination in 1854, but the Southern senators had blocked him. He wanted it now in 1856 or 1860, whenever he could get it, and he needed the support of these senators. So he had dual reasons for bringing forth this bill. After he presents the bill, Mr. Hamlin at once sought opportunity to speak with him and said, Douglas, your bill is a great moral wrong. In my judgment, it would be a pretty bad measure, a bad party measure. It is vicious in principle, and if enacted, it will produce infinite mischief. I shall oppose it. That is all I have to say. Well, the president, who was a Democrat and Hamlin was a Democrat at well at this time, um, now in the Senate from Maine, did not want that to be the last word. So they sent Caleb Cushing, uh, who knew Hamlin, the attorney general in the Pierce administration, who basically intimated to Hamlin that... All of the patronage in New England, all of the federal jobs, the judges, the postmasterships could be Hamlin's to a point if he simply voted for the Kansas-Nebraska bill. Hamlin sent Cushing away. Then he received a call from the White House and sat down with President Franklin Pierce. And this is an, isn't this an interesting change of things. So you first get kind of the Hard sell, and then you get the soft sell. Franklin Pierce said, okay, I get it. Your your morals, you don't want the patronage. I want you to vote for this for party, for party unity purposes. And he said no. And he voted against the Kansas-Nebraska bill and spoke vigorously against it. He then quits the Democratic Party and forms, he's one of the founders of this new Republican Party. It starts in Wisconsin in 1854, but in Maine, he's one of the strongest figures, and he runs for the governorship, not as a Democrat, not as a Whig. He takes on those two parties and now runs as a Republican. It had been announced that I was a member of the Democratic Party, but it had ceased to be a Democratic Party in principle. It inaugurated a policy that makes it a slave party, a sectional party, only more sectional than the Garrison Abolition Party ever was. A single point embraces its creed. No matter what may have been a man's political antecedents, he may have stepped to his lips in wiggery, he may have been dyed in old federalism, if he comes up to the standard of slavery, he's okay in terms of the democracy. It is no other issue. Taking on his own party, he wins the governor's election, serves for only a month, then there's an opening in the Senate, and they give it to Hamlin. He's back in the Senate. In 1857, he's thought of as a contender for the presidency. Not the vice presidency necessarily, but the, the, but the presidency. There's also Seward. There's also Edward Bates. You know, there's some talk of Abraham Lincoln, though a lot of it is as vice president, you know, as in, as a charming figure from the West. Um, Hamlin's right up there, and his, uh, people in the Republican Party in Maine support him as a favorite son candidate. It's also to block Seward who they don't want necessarily to win. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. But he's not there at the Chicago convention. He stays home and he almost wishes that he did go because the next thing you know... The convention in the wigwam in Chicago has nominated Abraham Lincoln of Illinois as president, not as vice president, with Seward as president, defeated Seward. They go to Seward, the Lincoln people, and say, look, you can pick a vice president. They demur. They're They're not interested in that. And so here's Hannibal Hamlin of Maine, whose delegates have not committed to anyone, and they ask for the spot. Hamlin's not consulted. When he hears about it, he says, what? I don't want the place. Yet he does take it in and receives a letter from the presidential candidate, Lincoln, you and I should be acquainted. That was how presidential tickets worked back then. The the VP and the presidential candidate didn't see each other often. Uh, It is true, though, and they share in letters that each had seen the other at different times. And as a House member. Lincoln had saw Hamlin give a great speech. Maybe it was, you know, his gag rule speech. Maybe it was a speech for the Wilmot Proviso. Um, you know, it was an anti-slavery speech of some sort or another that he was very impressed by and moved. And Hamlin said that he had heard Lincoln speak in the house and it made him laugh. I mean, in a good way. <laughs> um, Lincoln had played no role in the selection of Hamlin as a running mate and the two only meet after Lincoln is elected and he sends from the White House to have a pleasant conversation and he allows Hamlin to select the member of his cabinet from New England and Hamlin suggests the Navy secretary, Gideon Wells, uh, which Lincoln appoints. Other than that, Hamlin has very little influence. He's seen as one of the strong anti-slavery voices where Lincoln's seen as kind of a moderate compromiser from the West. Lincoln's a former Whig. Hamlin's a former Democrat. You know, it's a unity ticket, a unity administration. But Lincoln right now is not interested much in his advice. Uh, indeed, there's a an episode where after the swearing in and a little stint at uh, – chairing the Senate, you know, vice presidents are the president of the Senate, but very often they let the senators do it after that. Um, One of the things that Hamlin makes a point of doing, because he had been in the Senate so long and noticed that senators are often drunk, and there was a senator who used to give speeches with a flask in his hand. And as vice president and president of the Senate, Hamlin bans the drinking on the Senate floor, um, which he says greatly improved conditions for uh, those who wanted to be heard. When one senator from Delaware is drunk and starts shouting out things about Abraham Lincoln on the floor, Hamlin has the sergeant at arms arrest him and pull him off the floor. But other than that, there wasn't much for Hamlin to do. He goes back to Maine and then when Fort Sumner is fired upon, he leaves for New York City to be available in case something untoward happened to President Lincoln. The national emergency, here I'm reading from uh, Purcell's Vice President's A Biographical Dictionary. The national emergency and his own hard-working nature compelled him to action. But the vice presidency is not by its nature an activist office. Only the president could vest him with even a modicum of authority. And Lincoln's only request? was that Vice President Hamlin inform him of troop movements in New York, give him information. But in fact, VP Hamlin couldn't even do that because he returned to Maine having nothing to do in New York before he got the letter from Lincoln. Here's what he writes back to Lincoln. I went to New York in the hope I might be of some service to you or the government. I felt it my duty to contribute, even a mite if I could, for I thought I could feel something of the responsibilities you had to meet. I remained in New York two weeks, and not hearing from you in any way, I came to the conclusion that there was nothing for me to do. I even began to fear my motives might be misunderstood. Had I read a note before I left, I promptly and gladly would have performed that service or any other. Hannibal Hamlin. He offered to perform any service for Lincoln that he might need, but it's not known if any at all was requested after that. He Did go to New York again. He did go to Washington again at various times. When the wife of uh, John Fremont, Jesse Fremont, urged the vice president to help her husband uh, gain a command in the summer of 1862, here's what he wrote back. What can I do? The slow and unsatisfactory movements of the government do not meet with my approbation, and that is known. And of course, I am not consulted at all, nor do I think there is much disposition in any quarter to regard any counsel I may give, if at all. So, you know, he didn't have much to say, but Hamlin was consulted the night before Lincoln decided to give his uh, Emancipation Proclamation. There's the famous John Adams quote, which is, I am nothing, but I could be everything, Um, and Hamlin in a similar way calls himself a contingent somebody. And at a certain point when Abraham Lincoln comes down with, um, what might've been smallpox, you know, mild strain. And this is after he gives the Gettysburg address. There's a lot of talk in the news media now about Hamlin and, you know, in the, in the, in the papers and he's sudden, suddenly being talked about and he's kind of on the ready. He, he, uh, He says, should an emergency arise, be assured I will be ready to act at once with all the energy and efficiency I possess. And there's some thought that Washington could be seized at some time, and Lincoln's there. Uh, You had the Battle of Second Manassas, which didn't go much better than the first Bull Run, and the Confederates are close to Washington. So, you know, there's always that thought, and Hamlin's keeping himself mostly in either Maine or New York, away from the action. You know, it wouldn't be um, unlikely to find Hamlin in his shirt sleeves, harvesting hay, and working on his main farm. That was what, the, you get a good illustration of what the vice presidency was like at these times. But again, here's somebody that the minute something happened, and we know that he, the reality is, Hannibal Hamlin was only one month away, and one renomination defeat away, from becoming president. Hamlin is not renominated for the vice presidency. And, you know, this is something that does happen. It's going to happen again during President Grant's term, where you go from Colfax to Wilson. But the story of it is still a little unclear. Now there's a discussion I think the uh, you know, the textbook version of why Hamlin was not selected is that The Republicans wanted somebody who was a war Democrat, a Democrat who had supported the war. And they had Andrew Johnson, the military governor of Tennessee. And, you know, there were some rumors about him and his drinking and also that he could be, you know, a little bit cagey, a little bit not really someone who listened to orders as a military governor. But they're a group of radical Republicans that really liked him because they thought that Andy Johnson would tell, as he often did in speeches, tell those Southerners where to go. Um, and Andy Johnson really didn't like rich Southerners. Now, when he got into office, you know, things would change. But, um, that was the reason for selecting vice president. It's not known Lincoln's, you know, Lincoln's place. Now, in his public statements, he said he has no preference and could support Hamlin for his renomination. Uh, but there's also a thought that perhaps wanting to get reelected and fearing that continuing to run with someone who is from New England you know, wouldn't be as strong as running with the military governor from Tennessee, that he um, wanted to have Johnson on the ticket. So Hamlin's replaced and having banished liquor from the Capitol's Senate wing during the inauguration – you know Andrew Johnson, as the stories told by Hamlin, comes to him asking for a drink for medicinal purposes he had a cold he he needed a stimulant um that's what he did in those days and so Hamlin procures a bottle for him. Andrew Johnson gives a speech, and a lot of people in the audience are sorry that he was Hamlin was not renominated at that point because the speech drags on and on. His whole manner and speech were the inspiration of a brain crazed by intoxicating liquors. There was not a respectable man in that whole assemblage, from the president to the humblest page who did not hang on his head for shame at such conduct and on such an occasion. Every decent man in the nation feels disgraced. Of course, that is from a main paper that cared more about Hamlin than Johnson. Hamlin says goodbye to President Lincoln. Heads for Maine on March 10, 1865. The New York Herald has a story that he doesn't authorize, but might reflect his sentiments that said, The former vice president is thoroughly disgusted with everything and almost everyone in public life, excepting the president. It will be a little more than a month later that Hamlin will have to return to D.C. for Abraham Lincoln's funeral. Johnson appoints Hamlin to the collector of the Point of Boston, uh, Port of Boston, a prestigious position. But he disagrees with Johnson's administration on his policy on Reconstruction and soon resigns. Later, Hamlin will be elected to the U.S. Senate. And he'll serve until 1881. When his health will no longer allow him to do so. He's a supporter of James G. Blaine for the 1876 and 1880 Republican nominations. And under the Garfield administration, the Garfield and Arthur administration, he becomes minister to Spain. While absent, I was in and saw much of the different nationalities which enabled me to form opinions of the governments and people of Europe. And while I tried to judge fairly of all that I saw, I must say, I love our government and its plain Republican character all the better for what I saw. Hannibal Hamlin could scarcely be described as a great vice president. The office itself has no greatness in it. But during the Civil War, he served his nation, his president and his party with all the dedication and activism his painfully circumscribed role allowed. One should also not forget his significant role as a premier anti-expansionist in the 1840s and the 1850s, and his status as a mover and shaper of the Republican Party. That's according to H. Draper Hunt in a biographical dictionary, Vice Presidents, edited by Edward Purcell. At his last public appearance, at a Republican club dinner at Delmonico's in New York, in celebration of Lincoln's birthday, February 1891, he was toasted as the surviving standard-bearer of 1860 to thunderous applause. There's not much more to say about Hannibal Hamlin. He uh, retired from public life for health reasons, attended the Grand Army of the Republic meetings, which he was very proud read a lot, read poetry, and stayed in his home. He was playing cards at a clubhouse when he died the month before his 82nd birthday. It's possible to end with a what if. One can only imagine what might have happened. That if he, rather than Johnson, had become president and managed the reconstruction process.